The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're exploring the history and science of resuscitation, suspended animation, hibernation, and cryonics. A little later on, I'll be speaking with Michael Cruz, an advanced care physician from the Toronto, Ontario area, to talk in-depth about CPR standards, where those standards come from, and the evidence that supports CPR's use. But first, I'm here with Dr. David Kasseret, MD. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dr. David Kasserit, MD, a palliative care physician and health services researcher whose work focuses on improving systems of care for people with life-threatening illnesses. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, a faculty member of the Penn Department of Medical Ethics, and a director of hospice and palliative care for the University of Pennsylvania. He is also an author, and he is here today to talk about his most recent book, Shocked. Adventures in the Strange Science of Bringing Back the Recently Dead. David, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. So uh, resuscitation has actually been around a lot longer than I thought. I had always conceived of it uh, as something that came out of the 20th century, but it's actually been around a bit longer than that. It has. And I confess, I was pretty surprised uh, as I was researching this book to realize just how long we've been trying to bring back the recently dead. Um, actually, some of the history goes way, way back, uh, a thousand years or more, but all of the research uh, and, uh, and practical clinical work really started uh, in the 1700s, um, in part because uh, there were a lot of people who were dying of drowning, a lot of water around, uh, particularly in, in cities like London and Amsterdam, and so a lot of, of uh, well-meaning citizens uh, tired of, of seeing their fellow citizens fall into the water and, and drown decided to take matters into their own hands and, and develop societies, first in, in Amsterdam and then in, in London, um, societies dedicated to, to bringing back the recently dead or at least trying to. So what were some of these early techniques? <laughs> That is actually a very, very, very long list. Um, it included things uh, like tickling the back of uh, a drowning victim's throat with a feather, uh, rolling them over a barrel. Uh, one of my own personal favorites was throwing a drowning victim over uh, the back of a, a trotting horse, um, which in the process of researching shock, I actually decided to try. And, and I, I can tell you that it is exactly as, as unpleasant as it sounds. <laughs> to go through. Did any of these techniques, I'm sorry, were any of these techniques reasonable? I mean, do feathers in the back of your throat or being rolled over a barrel actually have any hope of working? Well, it's fascinating. The short answer is probably not, but the longer answer is that a lot of these techniques had at least a little bit of science behind them. Um, tickling the back of somebody's throat with a feather, just for the record, is a really, really bad idea. If somebody is not dead uh, but unconscious, you run the risk of triggering their gag reflex, which would cause them to throw up. And especially if they're uh, not entirely awake and alert, anybody who's throwing away, throwing up in, in those circumstances runs the risk of inhaling the contents of, of their stomach, which can lead to the aspiration pneumonia, which is a serious problem to have. So tickling the back of somebody's throat with a feather is a really, really bad idea. Some of these other ideas 
the best you could say about them probably is that they didn't do any harm. You could sort of, I guess, see some of the rationale behind throwing somebody over a barrel and rolling them back and forth or, or over a trotting horse. The, the theory, I guess, is that that, that motion simulates some of the, the regular chest wall movement um, that would uh, mimic what we now do as, as CPR, artificial resuscitation. The best guess is that these things probably didn't work, but at least they, they sort of made sense. There were, though, a few that actually we're still using today. There's one technique that was known back then somewhat ominously as the, the Russian method, which consisted of taking a recently deceased victim, drowning victim, or, or a, another uh, trauma victim, and burying them in ice or in snow. And that's interesting because, on one hand, it seems like it's the worst thing to do. Um, we know from long experience that it's much harder to restart somebody's heart if they're cold. And so a common saying in emergency room medicine is that if somebody is brought to the emergency room, you can't declare them dead until they're warm and dead, meaning you have to warm them up um, to somewhere close to, to normal body temperature while trying to restart their heart before you can declare that you can't restart their heart. So it's, it's harder to get and maintain a normal heart rhythm when somebody's cold. On the other hand, the colder you are, the easier it is to survive for longer periods of time without damage to your brain or, or other organs. And actually, right now, we're using uh, commonly uh, what are called hypothermia protocols, which involve cooling cardiac arrest victims to varying degrees in an attempt to slow their metabolism and to help them survive with brain and, and organs intact. And that relies on, on cooling. So um, there's a, a couple of different sides to that Russian method, but at least one of those sides to, to preserve brains organs. We're using techniques that were common 200, 300 years ago. So uh, from these early societies that were trying to save some people, or let's call them the nearly dead, was there any record of their success rates? Did they succeed? It's a common problem in research uh, that even when we keep records, um, we are more likely to report our successes. It's, it's even in research today, it's known as publication bias. You do a randomized controlled trial, for instance, and the results are negative. It's hard to get those results published, although if you have a positive result, it's, it's much easier to get published than to get published in a high-profile journal. So the short answer is yes, people did keep a lot of records, uh, initially in Amsterdam and then, and then in London and, and elsewhere. Um, and they reported both successes and failures. If you look at many of those reports, as, as I did, the results are skewed pretty heavily towards successes because nobody really wants to take the time to brag about somebody they failed to bring back from the dead. And so there are lots and lots of reports of attempts to bring back the recently dead, which were successful, some using a variety of, of strange techniques like tickling the back of a with a feather or throwing somebody over the back of a trotting horse. And to some degree, it's it, that tendency to uh, want to report successes that led to reports and, uh, and enthusiasm for a lot of these, these crazy techniques. But yes, I think that was, that was honestly one of the, the biggest advances um, and contributions to resuscitation, not the fact that, that various people were pulling people out of canals and and streams and trying to resuscitate them, although that was worthwhile, but the fact that they were at least trying to, to keep records of what worked and to a lesser degree what didn't. Did the science of resuscitation really start to advance from a medical perspective? It sort of depends on, on when you start the clock ticking on the advances in, in resuscitation, but there really were a lot of enormous advances that happened in the 50s and the 60s. And those advances really came in the form of, of some kind of rather basic advances. Um, this was really in the days before uh, some more fancy drugs and electric 
defibrillators came on the horizon. They were around, but they weren't they weren't widely used. Some of the most important advances back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s were what I refer to in, in shock as as crowdsourcing. These were basic interventions that were developed and refined and refined again and again that would allow any bystander to begin to resuscitate a patient who had had a cardiac arrest. And, and by that, we're talking about things like basic CPR, so the techniques of uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and the, the science of, of chest compressions. That was really basically in the 50s when we began to understand what chest compressions do um, what mouth-to-mouth resuscitation does, how it should be delivered, how the neck and the jaw should be positioned to make mouth-to-mouth resuscitation effective. Those weren't really new. We had experimented with those, again, way back in the, the 1700s, but it was really in the, the 50s that some of the science uh, began to be applied so we'd figure out exactly how to, to make CPR as effective as it, as it could be. This is Science for the People, and I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dr. David Kasseret, author of the book Shocked, Adventures in the Strange Science of Bringing Back the Recently Dead. So most of us know what we know about bringing people back from the dead from TV. How accurate is that? <laughs> uh, not very accurate. <laughs> Um, there's a, a great study that, that James Telsky, who's now at Duke, and some colleagues did. It was published in the New England Journal, gosh, probably 15 years ago now in which uh, they did a research project that uh, I think many of us who are researchers would have loved to have done. They they basically got a research team and and sat around and and watched TV reruns um, all day. And they looked for instances of uh, resuscitation, and they looked to see how successful those resuscitation attempts were. And what they found was that resuscitation was successful in some cases more than three-quarters of the time. Compare that to resuscitation attempts in the real world that you or I all live in, and resuscitation attempts are successful somewhere between zero and at most, at most probably 15 or 20% of the time. There are some exceptions, and there certainly are some people who... Um, have a cardiac arrest, have what's called a shockable rhythm, meaning they have a cardiac arrhythmia that responds well to defibrillation. For those people, if there's uh, an automatic external defibrillator handy, these are defibrillator devices for the public that appear in train stations and bus stations and health clubs, then your chances of survival can be as high as, as one in three. Uh, but for the most part, for most people who have a cardiac arrest, certainly out in a, a public setting, uh, the idea that somebody would have a two-thirds or a three-in-four chance of, of surviving uh, is, is really is really pretty crazy. But that's that's where we get our ideas for for what science and what CPR can can do for us. So physiologically, how does CPR work? What's actually happening when we do CPR? That turned out to be a really fascinating question. I had assumed going in and having gone through CPR training in, in medical school and residency, I had always thought that um, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation amounts to breathing for somebody, fair enough, and that uh, uh, doing chest compressions, two hands right over the sternum, right over the center of the chest at a rate of about 100 beats per minute, 
mimics the action of the heart. Meaning you're, you're using the chest wall underneath your hands to squeeze the heart. And as that heart squeezes, it's replicating what hearts normally do when they squeeze, meaning taking blood in from the right side of the heart, pushing it through the lungs, back through the heart, and then out into the circulation. It turns out that it's both more complicated and more simple than that. The heart really doesn't work that well, I learned, um, when uh, we do CPR. You'd think it would work that way, and you'd think that would be the theory, but it's really only now that researchers would be getting to understand what actually happens when, when CPR is performed. And I spent a day in a the laboratory of a guy named Josh Lamp, uh, who's here at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's interesting because he's not um, he's not a physician. Um, but he's uh, an engineer, and he got interested in the science of resuscitation because he really wanted to figure out how CPR works, how we could make it work better. And he's also very interested in in cooling. We talked earlier about the the Russian method and hypothermia protocols. Josh is really interested in in the science of of uh, cooling uh, cardiac arrest victims to get them as cold as possible as quickly as possible. But one thing that Josh told me as as I was watching some of his experiments was that the way we think about CPR working mimicking the action of the heart may not be as true as, as we've always thought. And what might actually be happening is not so much a movement of blood from the right side of the body through the lungs and out to the left side of the heart and out to the brain and other organs, but what may be happening is really more of a sloshing. That's not really a technical term, but that's how I've come <laughs> to think about it. it. It may be that we're not really moving blood in a single direction, but by compressing on the chest and by squeezing the heart, we're just kind of sloshing blood around which doesn't seem like it would be particularly useful. Although think about a bathtub. Think about dropping a couple of drops of food coloring in a bathtub. Those drops just sit there. But if you slosh the tub a little bit and swirl the water, then that food coloring gets distributed pretty quickly throughout the, the water in the tub. And so imagine, rather than food coloring in water, imagine oxygen in, in, the, in, in your bloodstream and imagine sloshing that around. And so one theory, at least, is that part of what CPR does is to kind of slosh the blood around and to take oxygen that's being administered by a ventilator or mouth-to-mouth resuscitation um, and uh, distributing it out to, to organs like the brain that need it. But I think that the big take-home point for me was that you'd think CPR would be fairly simple and straightforward, but it's actually very, very complicated, and there's, there's still a lot we don't know. So as I was reading your book, one thought that occurred to me fairly frequently was just do we have a solid definition of death? I mean, how do we know for sure that someone is actually dead? Is there a medical definition of the irreversibly kind of dead? There is. And um, the definition we use uh, clinically, for instance, when somebody comes in through the emergency department after a severe uh, prolonged cardiac arrest or in the setting of trauma, the definition that's used in the United States and in most Western countries is brain death. So the absence of, of any brain function. Um, in the absence of, of medications uh, like sedatives that can diminish brain function. So the definition of death that we use is actually pretty clear and pretty straightforward. Um, I think that the challenge for all of us is what happens to those people and how we make decisions for those people who don't yet meet those criteria. So if uh, somebody has cardiac arrest, uh, attempts are made to resuscitate them to restart their heart, that's finally successful. They wind up in an intensive care unit um, and it's clear that, that there's no, no meaningful brain function left, that person will be declared brain dead. There's, I think, some disagreement about that, and, and there are, are certainly some people who criticize 
that definition, but it's it's pretty well respected, and it's the, the definition that's used uh, to make decisions about whether somebody is able to, to donate organs, for instance. Um, that's the definition of death that we use. I think where things get really interesting and much more complex is upstream of that decision. So I tell the story in the, the book of, of Michelle Funk, who was a, a two-and-a-half-year-old girl outside of Salt Lake City in Utah in the United States who fell into a creek and drowned. And she was underwater for probably about an hour. Um, when she was pulled out of the water, she had no heartbeat, wasn't breathing, no signs of life. Um, but her rescuers tried to restart her heart. They tried for another two hours. So for a total of three hours, she had no signs of life, not breathing, no heartbeat. Um, until finally they were successful. And the reason that story is so interesting is because that was really an enormous advance in the time during which somebody could still survive after not having not having had a, a spontaneous heartbeat. And so if uh, you had asked a bunch of researchers or emergency room physicians a week before Michelle Funk fell into that creek whether somebody should be declared dead after an hour, um, I think most people would have said yes. Um, but Michelle's story really stretched the limits of what was possible. And now, all of a sudden, people were thinking two hours, three hours is possible. That's not really a definition of death, but it is really stretching and warping to some degree the decision-making process about how aggressive to be at trying to, to restart a heart. And frankly, we don't really know what the limits are. Right, right now, the limits are about three hours, um, and even that's a stretch. But who knows? With advances in technology, it's entirely possible that in another two years or 10 years, those limits could be seven hours, eight hours, 24 hours. Who knows? The story of Michelle is one of those sort of miracle stories you hear about how successful resuscitation can be. Uh, but I wonder how often are these success stories what happens? How often do you get the other scenario where maybe you've medically resuscitated someone, but they don't go on to live a full, uh, a full life? Yeah, unfortunately, those stories are much more common. They don't get nearly as much attention. You know, imagine an 84-year-old who has a cardiac arrest in a nursing home and is resuscitated and then spends a month in the ICU before her family decides that she would want them to, to stop treatment. Those sorts of scenarios happen all the time, but they don't make the national news and headlines the way that Michelle Funk's story did. So there is certainly a, a bias in, in what's interesting to the public and, and what's reported, and success stories are, are reported much more often. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders, and I'm here with Dr. David Kasseret, author of the book, Shocked, Adventures in the Strange Science of Bringing Back the Recently Dead. Um, I want to talk about the ideas around suspended animation and hibernation as well, because this section of your book was fascinating. What got you interested in this? Well, there was actually a story that I heard about um, a, a Japanese office worker um, back in 2006, was 35 years old at the time, uh, Mitsutaka Ishikoshi was his name, um, was at a company picnic outside of Kobe, Japan, and uh, wandered off from this picnic into the woods down the side of a mountain and disappeared. And nobody saw or heard from him for 24 days um, until finally he was found. And he had a body temperature of 22 degrees centigrade, which is um, much, much lower than the, the usual 37 or 38, um, but he was alive. 
So this was not somebody who had had a cardiac arrest and was hypothermic. This was somebody who was alive but had a really, really low body temperature. And during that 24 days when he was um, alone in the wilderness, um, he had been injured, he had fallen down, had had some head trauma, had had multiple broken bones um, due to a fall, but he managed to survive those. And that combination of facts, the fact that he had managed to survive a long time with, by all accounts, no food, no water, um, with all of these injuries, yet with a temperature that was really, really low, um, began to make me wonder what the, the science of, of suspended animation um, or hypometabolism, as, as some people call it, uh, might offer. And as I started looking into it, I, I realized that I was partly the first to begin thinking about this. Remember the Russian method we talked about before? Um, the idea that if you cool people, you could open the window of time that people can survive and recover with a lack of, of blood flow or, or oxygen or, or both, or potentially survive the sorts of injuries that, that that office worker suffered. And so for a long time, people have been interested in studying hibernation and how hibernation works. People don't hibernate, at least not naturally. But the theory goes, if you can figure out what causes uh, animals to hibernate, what their hibernation trick is, then and you could use potentially the same tricks to get the human body to reduce its metabolism. And again, the theory is if you reduce somebody's metabolism by 99%, reduce their oxygen requirements by 99% in the setting of a cardiac arrest or a near drowning or a motor vehicle accident or a soldier injured on the battlefield, for instance. You could extend the amount of time that they can survive and recover um, to right now what is 15 or, or 20 at most, 30 minutes for most people without a heartbeat. Um, you could potentially extend that to hours, maybe days, weeks, who knows. So what do we know about how hibernation actually works? We know it's pretty common. There are a lot of animals out there that hibernate. Um, some of the initial research uh, came from a guy named Albert Daw back in the 60s who did uh, research on squirrels, ground squirrels, what are called 13-lined ground squirrels. And he did a series of Frankenstein-like experiments in which he took some squirrels that were hibernating, took samples of their blood, injected that blood into other squirrels that weren't hibernating to see if he could induce hibernation. And at least according to his reports, he was able to. And that, that began to get people thinking that there was some chemical, molecule, hormone, back then people weren't really sure what it was, in the circulating blood of hibernating animals like squirrels that causes hibernation. There have been a series of, of experiments uh, that uh, isolate various molecules from hibernating animals, whether those are um, uh, squirrels or bears or potentially other animals, um, to try to figure out what those molecules are and, and what they did there. So right now, our closest working version of something like suspended animation seems to be induced hypothermia, which you mentioned a little bit before. Um, can you walk us through that technique and how it works? Sure. So right now, protocols for hypothermia are fairly basic, although they're getting much more advanced fairly quickly. The, the basic um, method of, of hypothermia induction in a patient with cardiac arrest, which is usually when it's used, is that as soon as somebody with a cardiac arrest is identified, CPR is started, um, and unless somebody can um, be resuscitated immediately, meaning their their heart can be shocked back into a, a normal rhythm, 
Um, there are a variety of techniques that are used, but the, the simplest version is to use ice cold or close to ice cold uh, chilled saline. Um, salt water um, that's administered intravenously. Um, it's often supplemented by some form of cooling from the outside in, whether that's um, packing a patient in ice bags. There are also um, devices that are essentially cooling vest uh, devices that uh, circulate cooling fluid um, through the vest that wrap around the chest and, and the limbs in an effort to, to cool people as, as quickly as possible. There are, as I said, though, um, some interesting um, techniques that are on the horizon to try to cool people more quickly. Uh, Josh Lamp, uh, the engineer at the University of Pennsylvania, who I, I mentioned earlier, one of his interests is, is studying the science of cooling. He's trying to figure out how to cool people as quickly and as thoroughly as possible. As you can imagine, just putting somebody in a, a cool vest, a chilling vest, is not the most efficient way of, of cooling people down. And so he's studying techniques um, that include things like injecting very, very cold saline into some of the arteries that lead up through the neck into the head, the theory being that you really want to cool the entire body, but you really, really want to cool the brain. Um, he's also experimenting with a device that's uh, being used in Europe, but has not yet, as far as I know, been approved in the United States or in Canada, called the Rhino Chill. Rhino is in R-H-I-N-O is in nose. And the way this device works, it uses um, uh, perfluorocarbon, which is a hydrocarbon that has a very, very low evaporation temperature. And it's a device that circulates this stuff uh, through the back of the nose. And as it evaporates, it cools the back of the nose. And the back of the nose connects to the brain through uh, a very vascular uh, piece of bone called the cribriform plate. It's basically a sheet of bone with lots and lots of, of blood vessels in it. And as this perfluorocarbon evaporates, the blood in the cribriform plate gets cooled, and that in turn cools the brain. It's it's sort of the same mechanism that, that dogs use to cool off. They they pant. And this is the the same way of of doing that, although without all the the messy slobber on the floor. Um, but he's very interested. Josh Lamp is very interested in in these sorts of devices and innovations to try to get people as cold as possible, as quickly as possible. Again, with the idea of of trying to improve their their survival. This is science for the people. I'm Rochelle Saunders, and with me is Dr. David Cassaret, palliative care physician and author of the new book, Shocked, Adventures in the Strange Science of Bringing Back the Recently Dead. So you mention uh, getting people really cold. And of course, we cannot uh, conclude this interview without talking about cryonics, uh, which is another section of your book. Again, really fascinating. So can you walk us through the current process for freeze-preserving someone? In an ideal situation, how does it work? I think in an ideal situation, you should probably do what you need to do, um, live the life that you want to live, and then die when you're ready to die. In an ideal world, you probably shouldn't rely on what is really still pretty speculative science, this idea that you could be frozen after you die and then somehow brought to life in, in a thousand years. So in an ideal world, if there's anything you want to do, do it before you die and don't don't count on that that second round. Um, but in a, a 
somewhat less ideal world if you are committed to this idea of, of being frozen. The first thing you need to do is to sign up for a program, and, and the costs are, are substantial, about $70,000 U.S. to have your brain frozen after you die, or about $200,000 uh, in U.S. dollars uh, to have your entire body frozen. So it's not a decision you can make at the last minute. There needs to be a lot of preparation. You need to sign up. You need to pay in advance, um, or at least put a down payment in advance. Um, to make arrangements to, to be frozen. And once you put those pieces in place, uh, what happens is that as you're getting sicker and right after you die, companies like Alcor or Suspended Animation Incorporated, which works with, with the Alcor Life Extension Foundation, will descend on your hospital room, um, your intensive care unit bed, uh, and will uh, replace your blood with Saline that includes a, a blood thinner will often put you on a bypass machine to make sure your circulation continues after you're legally and clinically dead. And then in stages, they will put you in a state of essentially being frozen um, at a temperature close to absolute zero in liquid nitrogen, and you'll be stored in these large metal containers at one of the uh, the few cryonics uh, storage facilities. One of the, the largest and best known is, is the Alcor Life Extension Foundation, which is based in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, you'll be stored there, at least in theory, until such time as our medical technology and clinical science gets good enough to reverse the causes of, of whatever caused you to die in the first place. Again, it's it's pretty theoretical. And today, nobody's been successfully frozen and and reanimated. About the best we've done is uh, either small pieces of animals, like a rabbit kidney, and I tell that story in, in Shocked. Um, however, to be fair, there are some animals out there that manage to do this on a regular basis, and, and I talk in Shocked, too, about the American wood frog that somehow manages to allow itself to be frozen when things get really cold in the winter, and then as things warm up, it begins to thaw, it restarts its heart, and, and hops away. So at least in the animal world, there are some precedents to suggest that the freezing and thawing process might be possible, but in humans, we haven't, we haven't even come close. And it seems like there's just leaving aside the resuscitation part, which we haven't even got to yet. Um, but it seems that there's a lot of risks just in the process of getting frozen. Yeah, unfortunately there are. And, and we know about those risks because of the, the story of a, a cryonaut. That's the unfortunate term that the cryonics industry uses for people who are, are frozen. They call themselves cryonauts. Um, one of the first, actually, was a, a man named James Hiram Bedford, who was frozen in, in 1967. Um, and due to problems with funding and caretaking, nobody was quite sure how to take care of his frozen body. So he moved around a lot, actually spent some time in somebody's house, uh, spent some time in a, a self-storage facility. But finally, in 1991, uh, was unpacked uh, to be stored in the, the Alcor cryonics facility. And, and as they unpacked him, what they found was really pretty gruesome. Uh, but one note the, the report makes is that there are apparently large cracks in his skin that were caused by the, the freezing process. Um, so regardless of the ethics or the morals or the clinical science of, of what this looks like, 
reading that description, he didn't really sound to me like somebody who was going to be jumping for joy uh, when he, if he is ever resuscitated, if in fact he's he's ever resuscitated at all. So there's there's a lot of damage that happens in the freezing process that we haven't managed to figure out and figure out how to avoid. And of course, you mentioned the costs of actually being frozen, but there are also, I would assume, ongoing costs of the upkeep of keeping you thus. There are. And so in theory, those initial costs of $200,000 for a body or $70,000 for a head should properly invested be enough to care for you for 500 or 1,000 years. But nobody really thinks, at least I haven't met anybody who really thinks that that's true. Who knows what could happen even 10, 20 years from now or what the costs of, of upkeep might be. Um, in addition to which, there are all the problems of, of not knowing what could happen or what society would be like. And many of the questions I, I get about that chapter are um, what sorts of, of uh, preparation might be required to ensure that somebody is actually able to wake up and function in a world that's that's a thousand years from now. Again, all this is, is very speculative, but the technology of freezing somebody in, in some ways is, is actually the easiest. Um, it's preserving them, it's thawing them, it's reviving them, and then it's figuring out what happens legally and, and ethically to to what they own and, and their property while they're while they're dead, but potentially hoping for another shot at life is is fascinating. And other questions, of course, arise as well, and many of them are financial, um, like we mentioned before. Uh, but who is responsible for your frozen upkeep long term? I mean, what if the cryonics company you hire today goes under in 50 years? Exactly. These are all fascinating questions. That was part of the problem with Mr. Bedford, who I mentioned earlier was frozen in 1967. He became this hot potato that nobody uh, really knew how to take care of. And so I, as I said, he was stored in a storage facility for a while. His family took care of him um, several times during his odd uh, itinerant career as a cryonaut. <laughs> companies that were responsible for taking care of him uh, went out of business. Uh, there certainly are some contracts that are in place when people get frozen, but who knows what sort of strength the contract might have in five years, let alone in, in 500 so this is a pretty expensive way to go, and yet there are people who are choosing to uh, go for cryonics um, after they die. How are people paying for this currently? Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, so you're right. There are a fair number of people who agree. Well over 100 people are frozen just at, at the Alcor Life Exception Foundation alone. Um, one of the most common ways of paying for this is using life insurance. So people will take out life insurance policies and then we'll essentially sign those policies over to Alcor or to another organization that agrees um, to provide their upkeep. So it's free in the sense that people don't necessarily have to have $200,000 uh, in cash at the time that they die, but it's not free in the sense that those life insurance policies normally, in other circumstances, might go to pay for a grandchild's college tuition, to pay off a mortgage for a house, to pay for help for a surviving spouse. So I've certainly talked to, to several family members of people who had decided to, to be frozen um, using Alcor or another foundation and uh, definitely came across some 
family tension uh, and discussion about whether that really was the, the best way to spend uh, a life insurance policy. So it, it may seem free in a sense, but in terms of, of other uses for those dollars um, and in terms of, of family well-being and harmony, it's it's not free at all. You mentioned that cryonics is largely speculative at this point, but I'm wondering how much science actually supports the idea of cryonics. Can we get there someday? Yeah, it's a good question. Obviously, there are some people who believe very, very strongly that uh, we can. Um, I mentioned earlier that the American wood frog, and this is a little amphibian that manages to freeze itself and thaw itself and restart its heart. And so there are certainly researchers um, who point to that example and say, well, you know, if a little three-inch long amphibian can do this, in theory, we, with all the technology that we have available, should be able to do it too. Um, there's also some uh, other experience with animals that make what are called antifreeze protein. Uh, one animal is called a, an ocean pout. It's a, a fish that uh, thrives in, in the Arctic Ocean and uh, thrives often in water that's at or below freezing and manages to survive because it's got these natural antifreeze proteins that, um, in theory, if we can figure out how to hack those genes and replicate what they do, could preserve organs or potentially even entire people under under circumstances of, of being frozen. So I think there's enough science out there, albeit at very, very basic stages, to make people really enthusiastic. It's important to keep in mind, though, that the best we've managed to do is freezing um, either very small animals <laughs> like frogs or parts of people uh, like heart valves and, and corneas, um, attempts to freeze larger organs, which would be medically very, very valuable. Imagine if we could, when somebody died who was an organ donor, freeze a heart, for instance, and then thaw it and reuse it without the pressure of trying to get that heart halfway across the country in a, a very limited amount of time for a, a transplant. So there's a lot of interest um, and there's some progress in, in trying to get better at, at freezing organs. And I think that's probably what's going to drive the field, not so much the, the science or research related to cryonics, but science that's related to things like uh, freezing and, and preserving organs. I think that's where a lot of the research money is, both from, from public uh, sources, like in the U.S., the National Institutes of Health, and also from the pharmaceutical industry. I think that's where a lot of the money is going to go. And if I'm optimistic about ever being able to freeze somebody um, in the future, it's because there is a lot of interest in preserving organs, say, for transplant. And I think some of the downstream effects of that research, if it's successful, might, I guess, maybe potentially someday freeze entire people. But it is right now very, very speculative. There seems to be a whole subculture that has grown around the idea of cryonics. Um, people who believe in cryonics seem to really, really believe in it. What is it about cryonics that converts people in a way that something like induced hibernation research doesn't? Where does cryonics get it sexy from? <laughs> well, it's certainly sexy to some people, but not to others. Um, I think for everybody out there for whom cryonics is uh, the gospel, um, there are dozens more for whom cryonics is just weird, frankly. Um, so I, I think there there are some people who are, are absolutely 100% committed. Although I will say that I, I was surprised. I spent I tell the story in, in shock spending a weekend at a cryonics conference 
in Arizona sponsored by the Alcor Foundation and, and spent a lot of time talking to people. And I, I was surprised at how many people really are skeptical. And some people who had signed up to be members, um, some have taken out life insurance policies that would pay for them to be preserved. And yet they were skeptical about what uh, cryonics might actually accomplish from them. Like I spent some time talking to, to one guy who said, you know, I, I really don't believe this is going to work, frankly. At most, maybe a one in a hundred chance, probably more like one in a billion. But his argument was, well, you know, a one in a million chance, that's better than, than nothing. So I think there is a huge degree of skepticism in the community and, frankly, a lot of pressure from a lot of people. Once you agree to pay $200,000 to be frozen and hopefully revived, there's an enormous amount of, of pressure that people like that find that members in the program are trying to bring to bear on foundations like Alcor to make sure that science is good. I mean, they've already paid up. They're in the program. They want to make sure that Alcor is doing everything they possibly can to improve their chances. And I think to answer your question, I think one of the, the main reasons why this is, is sexy is because there aren't failures. There aren't successes, but there aren't failures yet. And so this is one of these things that uh, you can believe in because there really haven't been failed attempts to revive anybody yet. And so right now it seems still, if not plausible, then at least possible. And it's, it's easy, I think, to, to maintain hopes uh, in something like that until we start having our, our first failures. And, and at that point, I think people's hopes will begin to, to dwindle much more rapidly. But right now, it seems possible. David, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, gosh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. If you want to learn more about David Cassaret or his books, you can find him at www.davidcassaret.com, a link which will be available on our show notes on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Stay tuned. In just a minute, I'll be back with Michael Cruz. <laughs> Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Michael Cruz an advanced care paramedic in the greater Toronto area in Canada. Previously a theatrical lighting designer, he retrained in 2005 as an EMT paramedic specialist at the University of Iowa and as an advanced care paramedic at Durham College in 2011. Michael is currently enrolled at the University of Toronto, working towards an undergraduate degree in physiology and the history and philosophy of science. He's also the co-founder and chair of the National Science Advocacy Organization, Bad Science Watch. Michael, always great to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Michelle. So before we dive into current CPR standards, can you tell us a little bit about the history of CPR? When did we start doing it and who invented it? Sure. So the invention, uh, just like most history, is not really attributable to one person, uh, especially in the case of CPR. Uh, we have to sort of go back and think about resuscitation in general. Um, and this is, was never really attempted in any kind of meaningful way until the late 19th century. Before that, of course, when you were dead, you were dead. And the heart as sort of the center uh, of the body was considered to be um, the, the cradle of life, as it were. And once it was done, you were done. Uh, it wasn't until the late 19th century that people sort of showed that you could actually move the blood around uh, with external chest compressions like we do today. Uh, somehow that was kind of disregarded, though, and it wasn't until the 1950s. And we had the real kind of evidence that formed the base of the modern CPR. 
And it kind of comes in three kind of uh, tiers, right? Um, as people may know, we'll get to this when we get to the actual procedures, but CPR consists of kind of three separate events. And one is artificial respiration, so breathing for the person. Uh, and the second thing, as we all know, is the chest compressions, is moving the blood. Uh, and the third thing is defibrillation. And they kind of occurred around the same time, but in uh, in sort of separate events. Uh, artificial respiration was first was proven to be uh, sufficient uh, for breathing uh, in the 1950s. Uh, and in fact, in 1957, uh, two gentlemen named James Elam and Peter Safar established that you can not only open the airway with what we would now call the head tilt chin lift, but that breathing into the mouth, doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, actually gave enough oxygen to breathe. Those guys connected with another group of researchers named William Kuvenhoven, Guy Knickerbocker, and James Jude, who found somewhat accidentally, I'm not quite sure what else they were studying, but they, they, they were applying external chest compressions and found that it could actually move the blood in a meaningful way. Meaningful way. Seyfar and Kuvenhoven presented their findings along with Jude at a conference in 1960, and they sort of synthesized artificial respiration and artificial circulation into what we now know as CPR. And that was sort of the first time it was presented as a as a possible resuscitative tool. Uh, the third component, defib, you know, electrophysiology and the, and the study of electricity and how it moves in the body has been going on uh, for centuries. But uh, it wasn't until uh, the late 1900s, or sorry, the late 19th century, that uh, this idea that you could stop the heart with a weak electric current and then restart it, fibrillate it, and then defibrillate it was found out. And uh, it did take a while for that to be applied. Uh, it wasn't until 1947 that an actual defibrillator was produced. Uh, unfortunately, though, it was run off of uh, wall current, off of AC. So these were large, you know, devices that you really couldn't move around. Uh, it wasn't until 1955 that Paul Zoll was able to to actually put this into a package that was useful. You could actually do it externally. The previous defibrillations were done internally, so you actually had to open up the chest. And then we had this Paul Zoll, who people will recognize as a manufacturer. Zoll company today manufactures defibrillators. He produced this unit that was actually able to, to defibrillate the heart externally, which was a big game changer. And then finally, when they moved it to DC, when you got battery powered in 1960, this joined the sort of ranks. We had all the components necessary to actually produce uh, a resuscitation effort through CPR. So let's talk a little bit about the CPR standards. What are the current standards today? So everyone will recognize, I think, if you've done your CPR in the last four or five years, uh, or four years, that the CPR guidelines changed in 2010. It's probably important to sort of back up a little bit and talk about how we got here. The, all this sort of accumulated in 1966. There was a first national conference held by the NIH in the U.S. to talk about the standards of resuscitation. And they got together and they, they came up with a standard. In 1992, they had, they had various conferences throughout the years to sort of update the standards as it were. In 1992, an international organization called ILCOR, which is a play on words of a sick heart, right, stands for the International Liaison Committee of Resuscitation. Uh, and this is a consortium of uh, people from all over the globe who are involved in doing research and coming up with guidelines for their regions for CPR, established not only that they would, as a group, uh, consider the guidelines every four or five years, but that they came up with an evidence evaluation criteria. And this was in line with the development of evidence-based medicine in the early 90s and early 90s as well. So they come up with this thing. Over the years, we've had some changes. In 2010, there were big changes, and these, these existed because we had new research. So the current guidelines, previous to this, we had this priority around the ABCs. 
and people remember this for years before this, where airway was prime, and then next you tackled breathing, and then the third thing you did was circulation. However, through the quite difficult research efforts to, to actually discover which of these things was better, uh, they discovered that people were delaying chest compressions far too long, that the circulation process of the ABCs was in fact the most important thing for survival. And so in 2010, they switched the letters around, and instead of ABC, we have CAB. So the current kind of algorithm, if we were to sort of tackle that from, from CPR, uh, sort of consists of your personal safety. So we check the scene for safety. Once we've established that we can enter the scene, we check the person to see if they're awake. If they're not awake, we do a very quick breathing test. And if we all suspect that they are not breathing or they're breathing insufficiently, uh, something we call agonal respirations, we just assume that their heart has stopped and we start chest compressions right away. And that Currently, there's a ratio of chest compressions to breaths. We're still teaching breathing if you've got the right circumstances, and that includes chest compressions uh, in 30. That's where 30 chest compressions, and then you open the airway and you give two breaths, and you do this back and forth: 30 chest compressions, two breaths. And that's that's basically CPR. I mean, the other the other thing that sort of changed was that people realized that doing mouth to mouth is um, kind of gross. <laughs> Nobody wants to do it, right? And it, I mean, it's, especially the more information you have about infectious disease, uh, it is really a taboo to put your mouth on somebody else that you don't know, uh, especially if they're more or less dead. So it was realized that this, first of all, people were taking far too long to do their breathing component, right? And meanwhile, their heart is stopped and the blood wasn't pumping. But people just didn't want to do it because it was gross. So this idea of compression-only CPR started to evolve in the 2000s. And uh, as late as 2011, there was a review of the research that showed that compression-only CPR uh, versus the 32-to-2 uh, ratio of compressions to breaths uh, showed no difference in outcome, uh, at least for adults, and, you know, with a cardiac cause of arrest. So that's where we sit now. We're kind of, you know, focusing on... Uh, compressions as the major uh, component, and uh, doing good compressions is really important. You did mention good compressions, um, and I've heard that a lot of people who end up doing CPR in real life actually don't do it correctly, and that compressions are one of the major things we tend to not quite do right. Yeah, it's very true, and, and you can imagine why. I mean, just, just because, uh, just in the same way that putting our mouth in somebody else we don't know, A, and who is dead, B, is kind of gross, doing chest compressions is a violent act. You know, you are, you're pushing on the sternum, which is the, the big bone in the center of the chest. Uh, you're pushing down hard enough to compress the heart, to squish blood out of it. There's a lot of stuff in the middle. <laughs> you know, you've got cartilage and muscle, and you've got the sac of the heart, the pericardium, that you're pushing on. So you have to push uh, quite deep in adults. Uh, it's at least two inches down that you have to push. Uh, in children, it's it's two inches is the, is the target. And this can be quite uncomfortable having done cpr you know many people in the in the process of my career it is not a very pleasant experience uh you can imagine that you've got a bunch of ribs that are connecting to the sternum in little sockets made of cartilage and uh these will at the very least pop out of their socket and so when you push down on the chest you get this kind of clicking or um crunching noise, which is not very pleasant. It really isn't. And then as the person gets older, of course, you've got bone density changes and, and you can break ribs. The first time you do a compression, especially if the person uh, is barrel chested or large, you're going to break a bunch of ribs getting to the point where you have to do actual compression of the heart. 
and it's not very pleasant, and that can throw people off. It's also very physical work. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of pressure that is required to push down that chest over and over again. And we see in the research that after just as little as two minutes, uh, chest compression depth starts to starts to to, to go down, and and that is directly tied to how much blood is used in the heart. So. You know, in the current guidelines, uh, we say that every two minutes you should switch out CPR in order to get a fresh person in there, in there to give the, the person who's doing CPR a chance to rest to improve the number of, uh, or the, the efficacy of chest compressions. Uh, in many cases, you know, that you don't have the, you don't have the opportunity to do that. It's, it's a single, you know, your, maybe your partner has, has a cardiac arrest or a member of your family and you're the only person around. So you're kind of stuck doing this. So you have to really focus on on getting good chest compression depth. Uh, the other thing that's coming up, in 2015, the guidelines will change in the fall. They'll be updated. Uh, and, I, and I'm, you know, the grapevine is saying that one of the big changes is uh, is to put a real focus on the timing of your chest compressions. You should be doing at least 100 a minute. And we think the new guidelines will have a set guideline that says you have to be uh, between 100 and 120 uh, compressions a minute, so that's about two every second. And so if you slow down, you won't be able to maintain the blood pressure that you built up after doing these compressions. So timing is important as well. So how often do, do we have any data on how often bystanders actually perform CPR in a situation where it might be helpful? The data that I have is from the OPALS study, A-P-A-L-S, under the OPALS study, which is uh, a consortium that looks at cardiac arrests in Ontario. Unfortunately, it's not very many. There is a difference as well between men and women. The average is around 15% of the time. Our, our CPR actually started by bystanders uh, in the out-of-hospital arrest. In-hospital arrest is a different character because you've got arrest teams, you've got lots of training personnel people are looking out for it but in the community um people don't start cpr a number of times in fact i i think there's been one arrest i've done maybe four or five arrests in the last year uh, and only one of those um was cpr actually started before we arrived by bystanders and that was because there was a nurse on scene who recognized the cardiac arrest and actually started it the rest of the cases usually it's family very often because the the cohort that's that's, that's having cardiac arrest are usually older uh, their partner's untrained and uh, unwilling, you know, and you can imagine why, to do CPR on their on their spouse. And this is despite efforts of the dispatcher, the emergency um, dispatcher, to coach them. So it's not done very often. And as you can imagine, because this is not done very often, outcomes uh, are often not very good on. So what is the difference in outcomes when CPR is started, for the lack of a better word, immediately versus when the emergency help gets on scene? Okay, I can't give you a specific number for that, but I can tell you that in the context of the Oakwood guidelines. There's a focus on what's called the chain of survival. Uh, and these are links in a chain that, uh, if all met, improve survival greatly. So the current survival rate in Ontario is around three to five percent, which means that only three or five out of every hundred cardiac arrests will actually survive uh, to get out of the hospital within a month. That's kind of the, the guideline, right? Which is not very many. And I think that there's a misunderstanding in the public that resuscitation is um, you know, something we're doing for 50 years. We always see people revive the television. And the notion is that if you just do this, people will live. Uh, and in fact, that's not the case. But most people stay dead. Now, there is a great study, again, based on Ontario arrests, where they looked at people who had uh, a chain of survival that was optimized. So their cardiac arrest, and let me just talk about the chain of survival. So there's several links. The first one is recognition and activation of EMS. So uh, unwitnessed arrests almost always 
don't survive. Uh, and that's because, uh, you know, they, they could be down for 10 minutes, they could be down for two hours, and we don't know. But if you witness the arrest, if you recognize that there's a problem and you activate the emergency medical system early, that's the first chain of survival. The second one is doing CPR. And then after that, we have defibrillation. And then all the stuff that happens after EMS arrives in the hospital, which is advanced life support care, and then and then, and then caring for the person if you get a pulse back. They call it post-arrest care. And with people who had, a, had an optimized chain of survival, they went from a survival rate of what, 4%, to a survival rate out of hospital of around 43%. So there was a huge gain, right? Uh, 10 times the chance, as it were, of survival. If you if we if we recognize it early, if we do CPR, if we do defibrillation. Now, there are some things that were associated with this, right? We've got people who are witnessed, arrests, possible cardiac origin, so it has to be a heart problem. You know, people who die from trauma uh, or from uh, sepsis, like uncontrolled infection, uh, certainly have a lower um, trauma is almost unsurvivable if you arrest in the field. Uh, if you have shockable rhythm, so if you've got enough heart muscle left uh, that is actually working, uh, but it's just disorganized, then we have a much better chance of your survival. Um, and in these cases where you had 43% survival, bystander CPR was 76%. So we are over to get most of the evidence showing that the number one reason people surviving these deadly uh, arrhythmias and these deadly out-of-hospital cardiac arrests is bystander CPR. That is the number one thing. I say number two is defibrillation, so the access to automatic external defibrillators is essential, uh, but people have to do CPR. Otherwise, the person's going to stay dead. So we all know CPR can be helpful. Obviously, how helpful it can be varies depending on this perfect chain. But why are so many people reluctant to do it, even those who have been trained to do it? There is a certain squeamishness that comes with doing CPR. Even people who are trained tend to forget their training within three months of being trained. Uh, and you can imagine that, I mean, as a paramedic, I've seen four or five arrests in the year. In the, in the ER, obviously, they see them every day. But in the public, seeing someone collapse uh, with a cardiac arrest is extremely rare. Most people who do their training will never see somebody and have the uh, opportunity to do CPR. And so when it does happen, people have forgotten a large amount of the training. Now, now, the EMS dispatcher is there to help you remember and honestly, if the only thing you remember is chest compressions, awesome. Just jump on the chest and start pumping. And that certainly occurs. But in many cases, people aren't trained. In jurisdictions where training is mandatory, now, my, my evidence is a few years old, but bear with me here. My understanding is that there are a couple U.S. states that mandate CPR training to get your driver's license, which means that there's a large number of people who are trained in CPR. In those, in those districts that you have this, this, CPR training, the survival rate is dramatically larger. I've heard rates of up to 30% uh, in these jurisdictions where people are actually trained CPR. So I think training is the biggest issue. And even though lots of people have training, most people won't see it. And a lot of arrests, most arrests happen in the home. So uh, if you're a retiree, if you're not working in a business that demands you have first aid or CPR training, then you're not going to get it. And and I think this is the biggest problem. Um, the other, I think the other issue is that People are, and I think that you've spoken about this in science with people in the past, people are not really used to seeing dead people, right? Whenever we see people who have expired, they're usually in a coffin, in, an, in a, a funeral home. They've been embalmed. They look alive. People don't know what it looks like to be dead. And so there's a hesitancy with a lot of bystanders to sort of recognize that their family member or friend has died. And in many cases, they don't know. And, and for us, you know, 
with, with medical professionals, it's obvious once you've seen a few people in cardiac arrest, you get to know it quite quickly and get sort of a second, a sixth sense for or an intuitive uh, notion of what that looks like. But for most people, they don't know. And so that combined with the powers of denial, right? They don't want their, their loved one to die. And, you know, maybe they weren't sick. Maybe it was a sudden thing, you know, that I didn't expect it. Uh, I think all of the th- all of these things sort of add up into, you know, a bad mix of people being hesitant. So I think training is the number one issue. If we can train more people, we can mandate training, uh, make it simple, make it easy. Uh, and I think we're going to see that. Compression-only CPR uh, is what's going what's to be in the future. Michael, thanks so much for coming back. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. If you'd like more information on Michael Cruz, you can find links on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And if you're in the mood to click links, we do encourage you to click the ones for our Twitter feed and Facebook page, where you can keep up with the latest from the Science for the People team. And of course, you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and other great podcasting sources, where you can subscribe to new episodes of the show or listen to past episodes. And of course, we always appreciate it when you rate and review us out there on the web. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.